time of worship and, and getting in your word and we pray, Lord, that your spirit would move in power in our hearts. God, that you would truly do a transforming work um, through, the, through the teaching of your word, um, God, because we know that's what, it's really what it's about, Lord. And uh, I just pray that uh, you would give us the, the minds to engage and the ears to hear and the eyes to see what you're trying to, to tell us individually. Lord, we'd be able to just pull some things uh, from this text, um, uh, from you directly, uh, that it would be you speaking to us in your name. Amen. All right. Um, so we've seen the rule and reign of Saul in the last few chapters, and we kind of see this contrasting thing between Jonathan and King Saul. Every time Jonathan would take a step of faith, um, sometimes the people would be inspired, other times not so much. Uh, but then we see a, uh, this fe- uh, step of faith from Jonathan followed by uh, an act of foolishness by his father, Saul. We see it when he provided the sacrifices. That was against the word of the Lord, right? Because he wasn't a priest. Uh, then we also see him consecrate this fast in 1 Samuel chapter 14. And we discussed how it was the wrong time. It was such a, a heavy burden on the people. Again, he made it mandatory. Uh, and, and they ended up uh, not being able to deal with it. They, they ate the animals. So God, once again, rejects Saul and his kingdom. Samuel has this conversation with Saul in the last chapter, and Saul's not seeing his sin for what it is. So Samuel helps him see this uh, sin for what it is, and he calls him out for uh, for idolatry um, and rebellion and, and all these different things. Finally, Saul appears to repent, but he doesn't really repent, right? It was a worldly sorrow thing. Uh, <laughs> he was upset that Samuel told him that God was rejecting him and taking the kingdom out of his hands. It wasn't about him and his relationship with God. It was about him uh, losing face, right? And he wanted Samuel uh, to come with him to to worship the Lord in front of the people so that the people would still think highly of King Saul. So we see that God has had it uh, with this king. Uh, Sadly, but truly, the Lord says he regretted putting Saul in power, even though he knew uh, from the beginning he prophesied that this would all happen. It would all go down like this. And we discussed how when God regretted this, it's... uh, it's not like God uh, made the wrong decision. Uh, he knew exactly what was going to happen. Like we said, he, he said what was going to happen. He was just sorrowful. He still had hope that Saul would turn it around, would literally turn to him and work this thing out. So now we're building up to the criteria, uh, the character of the king that the Lord is looking for. And he mentioned it earlier. He's looking for a man after his own heart. And in this chapter, we're going to be introduced to that man. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see the contrast between the people's king, Saul, and God's king. And God is going to choose a king that the people wouldn't choose. So the title of this teaching is Trusting God's Choices. Trusting God's Choices. In Isaiah chapter 55, uh, verses 8 and 9, paraphrased, it says that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways and his thoughts are, are far beyond ours. The things he does, the things he chooses, the way he thinks, it's so much different than the way that we think. And we're going to see through this text that different type of mentality, that different type of thinking from God. And we'll see that this choice was obviously the best choice. 
for all the people. So it says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. So we see Samuel at the end of the last chapter, him and Saul stopped being friends. They didn't see each other anymore, even though they only lived 10 miles away from each other. But Samuel like is crushed about this. He, he told the people this was going to happen, but he's not like, I told you so. He's like really upset. He really wanted it to work out for Saul. And this wasn't a thing with Samuel like, uh, well, uh, because I chose him and God used me to choose him, uh, I'm embarrassed by the choice I made. No, no, no. This is sincerity from Samuel. He truly is heartbroken over this thing. So he's literally mourning because of the choices that Saul made and the outcome of these choices. So God says, how long will you mourn for Saul? God says, it's time to stop mourning. It's time to get over it. There's a time to mourn and there's also a time to move forward. This now is a time to move forward. Hey, we got other business to attend to, which he mentions later on in this chapter. But we can do this too. We can get uh, stuck and, and wallow in our sorrows and, and, and be in this, this place of mourning maybe longer than God intends. Now, don't get me wrong. I've talked about this before. It's really important to mourn spiritually and, and especially the loss of a loved one or the, whatever the situation may be. We see mourning commended in the Bible and mourning uh, for the amount of time you need to to be able to deal with some of those issues of the heart so mourning is definitely not bad but what we see in this text is there's a time to mourn there's a time to move forward and sometimes we can get so caught up in the what ifs of the past that we prevent ourselves from walking in the what ifs of the future And we just get so stuck in this mindset. Paul says, forget the things that are behind and reach forward to the things that are ahead. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to move forward. God corrects Samuel. He says, hey, it's time to move forward. There's work to do. And he tells him, I'll reread it. See, and I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil. So when he tells him to fill his horn with oil, Samuel's no dummy. He knows what God is talking about. He's going to have him anoint another king. Okay, we know that's going to be King David in this chapter. See, God, he didn't reject Israel's kingdom, uh, which Israel's kingdom is essentially God's kingdom. He was simply just rejecting Saul in his lineage. He would no longer uh, have sons who would be kings. So his rejection of Saul wasn't uh, directly connected to his rejection of the people. He still was going to provide a king for his people. So he sends them to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And we see Jesse was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And we see that in Ruth uh, chapter 4. So we see through uh, that relationship came Jesse. And ultimately, down the road we see David. Later down the road, Jesus. And he says, For I have provided myself a king among his sons. See, Saul was the people's king, but David would be God's king. Saul was a a king after the people's heart. David, obviously, a king after God's heart. 
God is choosing the king that the people wouldn't choose. He says, this is what your choices are going to lead you to. Destruction, devastation. This is my choice. Often we won't choose God's choice for us until we see the consequences of making our own choices that are contrary to God's choices. Essentially, God's choice is always better than our choice. That's point number one. God's choice is better than our choice. The people chose King Saul. God would choose King David. Sometimes we won't always make the best choices for ourselves. So in certain circumstances, God will make the choices for us. Most of the time, he gives us a choice. But in this case, he's not giving the people a choice. He's not asking them what they think. He already gave them the king that they desired. Now he was going to give them the king that he desired. And when you look at this point and how it connects to our lives, we know it's obvious, it's logical. Yeah, yeah, God's choice is always better than our choice. But do we live that way? Do we see that in our life? Are we submitted to, do we surrender to God's choices versus our own choices? Or is there a battle? See, when we choose the things that God chooses for us, things always end up turning out much better than we would have ever imagined. And sometimes the thing God asks us to choose is way different than the thing that we think we would or should choose. For example, I would have never chosen this life for myself. I would have never chosen the life of ministry. I just wouldn't have made that choice. Uh, If anyone knew me growing up, that's the last thing anyone would have ever thought that I would have done. I wouldn't have chosen to go through the ministries that I've uh, gone through. I wouldn't have chosen to live in a third world country for a year. I wouldn't have made these choices because uh, I wanted to make these choices. No, they were God's choices and I had the choice, but it was obvious this is God's decision. He wants you to do this. It doesn't make sense to me, but I'll do it. And when you make the choices that God wants for you, they're always better Things always end up better than you would have thought. I was just talking to my mom about this a little bit ago, actually at dinner tonight. Um, And she was like, if God told me that one of my kids was going to be a counselor, I would have said it was you and then maybe your sister, not my brother. He doesn't even like people. But God has him in a situation where he's studying Christian counseling and he's like getting A's in all his classes and his professors love him and he's doing great. And it's like, even me, it's like, what? Really? That's what you, I would have thought like maybe accounting or something where you didn't have to talk to people, but you know, God, God is interesting in the decisions that he makes, but his choices are always far better than ours. Moving on. First Samuel chapter 16, verse two. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel, rightfully so, logically, understandably, he says, Saul's going to kill me if I anoint another king. Samuel knows where he's going with this. You're having me grab the oil to anoint a king. And that's exactly what God says he's going to do. So Samuel, logically, if I anoint another king... 
Saul is going to come after me. He's going to consider it treason. He's going to kill me. But God, in his sovereignty, he knows how this is going to pan out. And he gives Samuel specific directions. This is what you're going to do. You're going to take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. See, in the midst of Samuel's fear, and Samuel is one of the the greatest characters we see in the Bible, just a a very righteous man, a very very good man, a a man that loves the Lord, but he's afraid. And, And he's afraid to do what God's asking him to do, but then God gives him another word. And through that word, that word, that direction, is going to give Samuel the encouragement, the boldness he needs to follow through with the direction. See, sometimes when we're worried or we're fearful, we just need to hear a word from the Lord. We just need to hear a little something else. God, just give me a little. uh, I'm struggling with this right now. I'm afraid of the circumstance I can't control. Whatever the case may be. Sometimes we just need a word from the Lord. Like, God, I don't know if I can do this. I'm afraid to do this thing that you're asking me to do. Can you give me something? Can you confirm this to me? Can you encourage me through your word? And when he gives us a word, it makes it so much easier. Well, we know, and we all have fears. But we know when we're meditating on fears, essentially, most of the time, those fears, they never play out. They never actually end up coming to fruition. They're basically circumstances where we're meditating on things that we can't control. And ultimately, we're meditating on lies. And we think about all these things. And so often we can be bound by fears and bound by these lies that are controlling us. So not only do we need to hear a word from the Lord, but we also have to meditate on the words of God. And he says this in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things, and the context is being anxious, he talks about praying, and then he says this, Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. We need to think about what's true. Because Samuel could assume, yeah, Saul's going to kill me, but guess what happens? It doesn't happen. (laughs) Saul doesn't kill him. Saul doesn't even know about this situation. Samuel's believing something. He's thinking about something that's a lie. It's actually not true. And God says, just trust my word. Do what I'm telling you to do. God gives him this extra word of encouragement. He meditates on this word of encouragement. And he walks in what the Lord had asked him to do. And that's what it says. Next verse. 1 Samuel 16, verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. Samuel was obedient despite his fears. Okay, God, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to do it. Though I'm afraid of this thing, I trust you and I'm going to walk in your word. So he did it. So Samuel did what the Lord had said. He went to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was a small town that was not very far from Jerusalem. As we discussed, Ruth, Boaz, Jesse... David would come from here. We obviously know another person would come from here, right? Jesus came from Bethlehem. So Bethlehem, though it's small, it's super significant in the scriptures. 
So it says in verse 4, And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? So they're afraid that Samuel's coming. Now, we don't know exactly why they're afraid. Uh, well, the last act of Samuel, we saw him slay that king Agag, right? He chopped him into pieces. So maybe they're thinking... Uh, are we next? Are, are we in sin? And Samuel's going to chop us into pieces. Or could it be that Samuel didn't always have good news? He, he didn't always have something good to tell the people. And we know he went, went around and visited people on a regular basis. So sometimes maybe his news was good. And other times the people are like, oh shoot, what did we do this time? Regardless, the people are trembling. They think this is going to be bad news. But it's actually going to be good news, it says in verse 5. And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So we have to understand this. He wasn't inviting Jesse and his sons just to watch him perform a sacrifice. Now, there were many different types of sacrifices listed in uh, Leviticus and really the, the, the five books of Moses in different areas, specifically Leviticus. But we see different sacrifices. And uh, when you were sacrificing something uh, to, to atone for sins, then you would burn up the entire sacrifice. There would be nothing left of the animal. But when you were uh, performing things called uh, peace offerings and fellowship offerings and consecration offerings what you would do is burn specific parts of the animal the fat and uh, organs and entrails and uh, depending on the specific sacrifice but then the rest of the animal you would actually eat and you would have a, a big feast so this is really the type of sacrifice we don't know if it's a peace offering or a fellowship offering this is the sacrifice that uh, kind of type of sacrifice that Samuel's going to provide. So he's not just inviting Jesse and his family to just watch him do a sacrifice. He's inviting them to to a feast. Now, when you look at this, God tells him, hey, you're going to anoint King David, but you're also going to grab a heifer and perform a sacrifice. And you can look at that and be like, is God telling Samuel to be honest? Is he telling Samuel to, to lie that he's going to really anoint David, but he's performing the sacrifice? That's not what it is. He's using the sacrifice as a means to get to David. Because we're going to see later on that the family really doesn't know what happens. Even though David gets anointed, they, they don't understand what it actually is. So God's using the sacrifice. He's not telling them to lie. He's using the sacrifice to get the family together so he can perform the anointing that God's asked him to perform. It's all part of the plan. Verse 6. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Obviously, we know that Eliab wasn't the king. Eliab was the oldest brother. Apparently, he was uh, big and good looking. And the guy you would think, this guy must be the leader. Samuel assumes that it's Eliab, but it's not Eliab. Samuel was wrong. Spiritual people can still be wrong discerning spiritual things. And he was. So, God corrects him in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I want to break this down a little bit. First, he tells him, do not look at his appearance. God corrects Samuel for his lack of spiritual discernment. 
And if you think back, this was the same thing that Israel did with Saul. Tall, dark, and handsome. This is the type of king. Eliab was probably tall, dark, and handsome. He says, oh, kind of like Saul. He's going to be the next king. Okay, God's choosing a king like the last king. We know, obviously, that's not going to be the case. But we often can do this as well. We often judge from the outward appearance of things. And if you say, if we had, just pretend, okay, pretend with me. If we had Saul of Tarsus, Paul, okay, standing up here, versus Saul of Gibeah, the king, and I had these two guys standing up here, and I said, pick one, which would you pick now? Before I get into that, Saul of Tarsus, as he's described, was a bow-legged, short man with a big nose and a unibrow. This is really how he's described in history. Like, the guy's like, probably weird looking. Like, I don't even know if I'd want to have a conversation with this guy. How he's described in history, he definitely wasn't appeasing or appealing to the eye. Saul of Gibeah, obviously, he's tall, dark, and handsome. Taller than any other man. Best looking guy around. We would look at these guys and be like, dude, I don't want the weird guy leading us. Let's pick the tall, good looking guy. We tend to do this, right? We tend to judge books by their covers. The Lord... He doesn't see as God sees. Sorry, the Lord doesn't see as man sees, which we'll get into a moment. But what Jesus, sorry, what Yahweh is doing here by saying, don't look at his appearance, Samuel would have chosen Eliab. Sometimes Yahweh needs to save us from our saviors. That's what he's doing. Samuel would have chosen Eliab. And he would have been wrong. And Israel would have been in just as bad of a scenario as they were, which is a horrible situation, or even worse. Sometimes God has to save us from our saviors. We don't see as God sees. And when you look at Christ, this is the same thing that happened with him. He wasn't what everyone was expecting. In fact, the Bible tells us and in Isaiah 53 that he wasn't a good-looking man. Let me show you in Isaiah 53... This prophecy concerning the suffering servant. It says, Isaiah 53, verse 2. At the end, it says, He has no form or comeliness. And when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. Jesus was not a good-looking man. Most of the pictures we see of Jesus are so off. He's not a good-looking man. Like, below average, we're talking. He didn't look like what the people expected. So they didn't choose him as king. We don't want this man to rule over us, they say, just before his crucifixion. We have this issue and we can do this. We can get so focused on the outward appearance that we miss what's on the inside. And God, he asks us to see things differently. The Lord does not see as man sees in verse 7. We don't see the way God sees things. So it's not just like that's okay that we don't see the way God sees things. We got a purpose to see the way God sees. This is point number two. Purpose to see how God sees. Purpose to see how God sees. He wants us to see things the way he sees things. You guys remember, if you were here during the barbecue, we talked about this text in Luke chapter 7, so it should be somewhat fresh. But just to remind you, this is where this woman, who's believed to be a prostitute, comes and anoints the Lord's feet with oil and and weeps over his feet and cleans the feet with her tears uh, and her hair. 
And we see he's at this guy named Simon, who was a Pharisee's house, at Simon the Pharisee's house. And he says in verse 44, Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Now, just before this, Simon is saying to himself, he doesn't know what manner of woman this is. So Simon the Pharisee is seeing things differently than Jesus is seeing things. So Jesus says, you think you see this woman, but do you see this woman? So he goes on to say, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, the point is, Jesus was trying to get Simon the Pharisee to see this woman how he saw this woman. He sees the heart of this woman, this heart pouring out this act of worship and repentance before the Lord, judging her based on her past and what he knows her as. Sinner, this this woman is, he says, God doesn't see things, doesn't see people the way we see things, the way we see people, but he calls us to see things the way that he sees things. That's why he tells us we need spiritual eyes to see. We need to see the things. We need to have the same perspective that God has. And he goes on to say, after he says, for the Lord does not see as man sees, verse 7, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is looking at the heart. And this means a lot. We'll just talk about a couple of the things that this means. God is looking at character over ability. He's looking at character primarily. That means also that God sees things that we're not seeing. So in other words, God is telling Samuel, don't look through your own eyes, through your own perspective to make this call, through your own form of, of logic, uh, make your own judgment. No, you have to look to me to make that judgment so that you can see as I'm seeing. So God is inviting Samuel, no, no, let me make this choice for you. I'm going to try to help you see what I'm seeing. I'm going to try to help you see what you're not seeing. We know the primary thing that the Lord is looking for in the heart of man is what? A man after God's own heart. And that's what he sees in David versus the rest of these brothers. He goes on to say, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 8. So Jesse called Abinab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, These are, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. See, Samuel, after the Lord corrects him the first time, he learns his lesson, he begins seeing how God sees, and now he's making his judgments, he's making his decisions, he's making his choices uh, based on the Lord's perspective about things. Oh no, I was wrong about Eliab. Actually, none of these sons, though they look great, they appear like leaders. That's not the one that the Lord is looking for. Imagine how badly things would have gone if Samuel took matters into his own hands and chose one of these brothers to be kings. As we mentioned before, things would have only got worse for Israel. Now, we can only 
make the right judgments, the, the, the right choices if we're looking to God to help us make those choices. It's not just a matter of us making choices based on what we think or what makes sense to us. It's looking to the Lord and saying, God, am I seeing this thing clearly? Help me to see it how you see it. Help me to make the choice that maybe I wouldn't make, but help me to make the choice that, that you would make. And this is where Samuel learns here in this text. He continues on in verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. So thinking back, Samuel Asked Jesse to bring all his sons, right? And Samuel, or Jesse brings seven of his sons, but he leaves out David. Now, logically, you would think, well, we just looked through all these sons, Jesse's sons, and in this moment, Samuel didn't know how many sons Jesse had, and he says, well, it's none of these. What many of us could do in that situation that when the Lord gives us a word, right? He, he, he told him to anoint a son of Jesse. But for some reason, circumstances seem to be contradicting God's word. Wait a minute. I just looked through all these sons. Uh, it's none of these sons. Is God a liar? No, that's not what Samuel does. He's wise. He knows there must be a, a, an alternative. There must be someone left because he trusts God's word despite the fact that it contradicts his circumstances. He sees the sons. It's none of them. Something must be wrong and it's not God's word. It must be my circumstances. So he asks him if he has another son. It's point number three. Trust God's word despite your circumstances. Trust God's word despite your circumstances. It's exactly what Samuel does. He could have just given up. Oh, well, I guess it's not these. Uh, maybe I, I misheard the Lord. But he knew he heard the Lord clearly. He knew he heard the Lord accurately. So he doesn't question God's word. He questions his circumstances. When our circumstances seem to contradict God's word, it gets easy for us to, 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 to question God's word. Is that really true? Did God really say, can I trust this certain area of scripture? Because it doesn't seem to line up uh, with my circumstances. So something's wrong. I guarantee you, when our circumstances don't seem to line up with God's word, it's not his word that's wrong. There's something about our circumstances that we're not seeing. There's a piece of the puzzle that we're missing. Samuel, because he trusts the Lord... He realizes this. There must be a piece of the puzzle that I don't see. Do you have another son? So he asks him in faith. And he says, yes, I do. The youngest who's keeping the sheep. See, Samuel was the youngest. He was the runt. Samuel wasn't looked highly upon by his brothers or by his family. In fact, they didn't even invite him to the feast. He's like, oh, it's David. Uh, sorry, I, I said Samuel. It's David. He just, uh, uh, he can take care of the sheep. He doesn't get to be a part of this ceremony. So we begin to see how the family looks down upon David, which is very interesting. And we'll see this throughout David's life. Uh, David is a type of Christ. There's very similar things that we'll see 
see throughout David's story that line up or a parallel to foreshadowing things that Jesus was going to do, foreshadowing character qualities that Jesus had as well. That's why Jesus would come through the lineage of David. And Jesus also, his family, didn't look highly upon him. They didn't believe him. In fact, at one point they called him crazy. They thought he was out of his mind for speaking back to the Pharisees. It wasn't until the resurrection that they truly believed who he actually was. You see that with James and his other brothers as well. Jude, later on, become leaders, write epistles. But David, in this moment, he's keeping the sheep, which is important. David will often talk about his experiences keeping sheep and the parallels and connections that God gave him that he made out there tending sheep. And God knew that because David was able to be faithful tending his earthly father's sheep, he would be able to be faithful, for the most part, tending his heavenly father's sheep. In fact, it says in Luke chapter 16, verse 10, if you want to write it down, Luke 16, 10, says, He who is faithful in little will also be faithful in much. Being the young shepherd was David's training ground. He was preparing him for something bigger. And David had the right mindset. I've mentioned it before, but tending sheep is not a fun task. It's kind of cool for like a day. But after that, it's like, it's not very fun. It really isn't. It's a dirty job. Sheep are, are hideous. Takes a long time for them to, 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 to listen to you, to follow you. It's a lot of work. This was a servant's task. But this was what God had him to do. He was using this time of service to prepare him to be a servant leader, to be a leader over the nation that would serve his people. And we see that through the life of David. Now, David is described here in verse 12. It says he was ruddy which many believe, there's different thoughts behind what this word ruddy means, uh, but many believe that he was uh, that he had fair complexion, um, which living in the Middle East was uh, a little more rare. People were typically darker, um, so this was, like a, this was a good thing. All these qualities that he's talking about uh, are good things. It says that he has bright eyes that speaks of uh, vitality and intelligence. He had energy and he was smart. He was engaged. Uh, it also says that he was good-looking. Do I have to describe what that means? I think we know, I think we know what that one means. No, no need for interpretation there. So David, he was a good looking guy, but the point is, though he had these good character qualities, both internally and externally, it wasn't like the guy that you'd pick out of the crowd and say, that's a naturally born leader. It's probably someone that it's like, yeah, he's a good looking guy, but, but you'd look over him and that's the whole point. They're describing him like this, but he wasn't like a, he wasn't a Saul. He wasn't an Eliab. He was a little more normal, but good looking. Now, Josephus says that uh, David was about 10 years old. Uh, other scholars will say maybe about 15. Uh, regardless, he was in that t- age range between 10 and 15. So he's a young boy. He's a young man at this point. Imagine that being anointed as king at that age. Like that's crazy. Or even someone being like a, becoming a pastor or something at that age. Like that is a crazy thing to happen. So Samuel being directed by God. Anoints him. Verse 12. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Samuel was listening to God. God told him what to do. And he anointed the one that everyone would least expect. Point number four. God's choice isn't always our choice. 
God's choice isn't always our choice, especially when it comes to choosing leaders. We see the credentials of leadership in the church and the people that God chooses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, it says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. This is why, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. This is why God chooses people like me. This is why God chooses people like you. It's not because you got it all together. It's because you're a mess. And you know that the only way you have become the person that you are now, even though we're still all messes, is because of the grace of God. You can't glory in your flesh. You can't say, oh yeah, I know why God chose me. Like I'm this, I'm this great thing that brings all this stuff to the table and these spiritual gifts and talents and intellect and all these things. That's not the case. It's actually the opposite. He chooses the foolish, the weak, because it's not about our glory. It's about the Lord's glory. But there's also, as I mentioned before, a super important credential that the Lord is looking for when we're talking about leadership. And that, again, is the person, the man or the woman after God's own heart. That's what he said in 1 Samuel 13. I'm looking for a man after my own heart. And that's what David brought to the table. He wasn't the one that you'd pick out of a crowd, but internally He had what God was looking for. Now, how is this heart after God produced in David? There's no way for us to tell for sure, but it's interesting when you look at the Psalms, David doesn't talk about his father, but he does talk about his mother. And if you want to write these down, we won't flip there. In Psalm 86 verse 16, Psalm 86 verse 16, and Psalm 116 verse 16, twice he refers to his mother as the servant of God. I believe personally that his mom had a lot to do with producing that character quality in David to be a man after his own heart. He was probably the runt, you know, the one that was looked down upon. Maybe his mom had a special place in her heart for David and maybe she taught him the ways of the Lord. We can't really read into it. Uh, we can make assumptions, but we don't really know. But we see that she obviously played a major impact on David and his life. And often we think about the man being the spiritual leader of the house, which is true, which is biblical. But sometimes we don't see or don't realize the magnitude, uh, the power that moms bring in raising up sons. Do you hear this? Like literally God can use moms to raise up kings after God's own heart. Like that's a very power. He doesn't say Jesse, the servant of God, the one that taught me all the things and taught me how to. No, he references his mother. His mother played a crucial part in his spirituality. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So it appears he's anointed at this feast in front of all his brothers. But it appears, at the very least, we know that God knows what's actually happening. And, da- uh, and Samuel knows what's actually happening. We don't even know if David actually knows what's happening. He knows he's being anointed, but he may or may not know that he's being anointed as the king of Israel. Because we'll see this later. 
come up just based on some things that he does and says. It doesn't appear at all that Jesse nor his uh, sons knew that David was being anointed as king. They, they, they likely didn't see the significance of this. Now, Saul was obviously positionally the king, right? And he would still be the king for, um, for several more years. I think a couple more decades, actually. But David was the king spiritually. And this is interesting when we look at the typology between David and Christ and what, what, how the, the, um, how the enemy, how Satan is referenced in the scriptures, he's referred to as the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air. Positionally, scripture tells us that Satan is the king of the earth. He is the king of the earth right now. But spiritually, Christ is. And what do we know is gonna, Christ is going to do? Eventually, he's going to come back in his second coming and establish his kingdom. Spiritually, Christ is the king. But positionally, at least in the dynamic of this earth, Satan is the god of this world. He has authority, in a sense, over this world. Now, we know God has ultimate authority. But there's that connection here between Sam, uh, sorry, David being anointed as king spiritually but positionally it hasn't happened yet same with christ he is the king of kings the lord of lord lord of lords but positionally he will come to establish his kingdom as david's kingdom hasn't come yet now it says the spirit of the lord came upon david from that day forward meaning it remained on david from that day forward this was the real anointing, right? The, the, the physical oil was just representing the spiritual thing that was going to take place. There was no magic in the oil. It just was a representation. It was an opportunity to exercise faith. That's what the oil is all about. And it's obviously symbolic of the Holy Spirit. But this is the real anointing. We saw the same thing happen with Saul. He was anointed with oil. Then later on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he was able to prophesy. But this is also important. This is crucial. God is calling this young boy, this young man, to become the next king of Israel. And there's no way he's going to be able to do it without what? The power of the Holy Spirit. God, if he calls us to anything, which he does, will always equip us to fulfill the calling. He won't call you to do something that he won't equip you to do. If he calls you to do something, and sometimes God calls us to do things that are a little intimidating... We can trust that he's going to equip us to fulfill the calling, just as he does David. And he says, at the end of verse 13, So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Samuel didn't start a political campaign for David. He he didn't go around trying to persuade everyone, Hey, 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 guys, David's the next king, David's the next king. No, he left it alone. All he did was do exactly what God told him to do, and he went home. He, He let God figure out the rest. I think there's something to be learned here. So often we try to fulfill God's plan and we think we have to put so much work and so much effort and so much energy and I need to make this thing happen for myself. But all we got to do is just do the, th- the things that God asks us to do and put the rest in his hands. Let him do his thing and we do our thing. I think too often we take some of God's responsibilities and, and believe that they're our responsibilities. It's not our responsibility to fulfill our calling to the fullest form. Yes, we have to take steps of faith. And yes, we have to be obedient. But it's ultimately God who's going to get us to the place that he's called us to be, okay? Uh, And we'll talk a little bit about more, more about this as we continue on in the text. If you look at verse 14, it says, 
But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. So we see throughout the whole uh, the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come would come upon people in certain circumstances. Then he would depart. Right? He would come upon Saul. Uh, he would prophesy. Then he'd depart. Uh, he would come upon Samson. Samson would have great strength. He would be, he would come upon the judges at certain time periods. Um, but we see in the New uh, Testament uh, we have a different operation of the Spirit. Yes, you have the coming upon. Yes, you have the para. That's the with. But now in the New Testament and uh, in the time period we live today, we also have the indwelling spirit. And when we receive the indwelling spirit, it says we're sealed for the day of redemption. Meaning once we receive the indwelling spirit, it doesn't depart. There's no indication in scripture that the Holy Spirit will depart from us when we have the indwelling spirit. So this was a different operation. You can look at that. Is, is, is the spirit going to leave me if we're truly saved, if we're truly believers? We have the indwelling spirit. Now, even as believers, certain times the Holy Spirit can come upon us to operate in different gifts and uh, do different things that the Lord has called us to and bear witness. And uh, there's a lot there. But we see in this text, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. See, the reason this the distressing spirit came was because the Holy Spirit departed. And it says there was this distressing spirit from the Lord that troubled him. Now, God sent this spirit in the passive sense. It's really like this when you look at the original language. It's like God took his hand off of Saul. He took the protection off of Saul. So Saul was prone to demonic activity. Okay, it's the passive uh, tense. That's how the word is communicated there. So it's not like God just sent a demon to attack Saul. It's no, he took his hand of protection. And because that protection was off of Saul, it made him prone again to demonic activity. And it says, verse 15. And Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. This was obvious to everyone that this distressing spirit was troubling him. So they say in verse 16, let your master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you and you shall be well. So the people see that something's going on spiritually. He's going through the spiritual battle. We don't really know what this looked like other than the fact that it troubled Saul. So they essentially look for a worship leader. We need a worship leader to help him battle this spiritual warfare that's going on in his life. Literally, they're saying worship is the key to this spiritual activity that's happening. And it's interesting to look at that. More often than not, I don't think we consider worship, maybe some do, maybe some don't, as a tool to battle spiritual warfare. And it is. It's just that. So often worship really is the key to solve many of our problems. And Jesus, in fact, he talks about this. In John chapter 4, remember, he has that conversation with that Samaritan woman who had been sleeping around with all these different guys. And Jesus calls her out for her sin. Go get your husband. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus begins to uh, reveal her sin, reveal who he is to help her see her sin for what it is. But he doesn't just leave her there. He sees the problem. He reveals the problem, but he also points her to the solution. And what was the solution? Worship God in spirit and in truth. Worship is the key to your problem. The problem that you're struggling with, the, the, the places that you're looking for love are all the wrong places. And what you really need to do is worship God. And if you're worshiping God and in spirit and in truth, 
those problems are going to go away. So interesting, as we see there, and also here, worship is so often the key to so many of our problems. So the people, being discerning, realize this, so they go to get a worship leader. Verse 17, so Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of his servants answered and said, look, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. David, as this young man, is described in this way. These character qualities are, are, are so admirable, but even as a young man, because he was a young man after God's own heart, he was skilled, he was prudent in speech. He was just a, a, a man that people really looked up to, even at a young age. See, The people, they weren't just looking for somebody that was skillful in playing the guitar. They weren't just looking for somebody that had a good voice. They were looking for someone that could help Saul overcome his spiritual battle. And that's really what a worship leader is. They're called to help people overcome spiritual battles. And yes, um, you know, there's certain criteria. We don't want to listen to people that don't have a great voice or can't play the drums or the guitar or whatever. But the reality of it is uh, the, the, the priority, the main thing that um, God is looking for in worship leaders is people that can uh, that can lead people to the feet of Jesus so that they can overcome these spiritual obstacles. That's exactly the person that David was. They found the perfect worship leader, if you will. First Samuel chapter 16. Verse 19, therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. David went back to doing what he's always been doing. He and this is one of those indications that we don't really know if David knew the extent of what happened, that anointing. Maybe he knew, uh, maybe he didn't, even if he did knew did knew, did know <laughs> he wasn't taking <laughs> he wasn't taking matters into his own hands. Pretend he knew that that God anointed him as king of Israel. He was trusting in God's favor. He wasn't just trying to make things happen for himself. Okay, this is point number five. Last one. Trust in God's favor, not in your agenda. Trust in God's favor, not your agenda. Again, sometimes we want to make things happen for ourselves. That wasn't Samuel's mentality. That wasn't David's mentality. He went back to doing what he's always done. And we feel, once again, this obligation to to make it work. To work, work, work till we get it done. Till we fulfill what God's called us to do. But he's asking us to simply trust him. There's a time to work, yes. But there's also a time to be still and know that he is God. And God's put me in certain situations. Usually it happens through injuries where, where I can't do anything and all I can do is trust God. And it drives me crazy to be honest. Uh, but in those circumstances, I've seen God show up in so many different ways and teaches, teach me things that I would never be able to learn if I had all those abilities. Because I have that tendency to take matters into my own hands. The Lord says, no, no, be still, trust me in this. Just do what I'm asking you to do. Let me handle the rest. Proverbs addresses this. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. and all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Our job is to trust in the Lord. His, way, his, his job is to, to direct us, to, to get us to the place that He's called us to be. There was a time, a specific time for David. And David 
was able to trust in God's favor on his life. He wasn't just trying to make things happen for himself. He continues on, and this is where we'll close. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 20. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. So Saul loved loved David so much so that he made him an armor bearer. Now, God is still using this situation to raise up David. Before David could become a great king, he had to learn how to be an armor bearer and an armor bearer of a very corrupt king. And sometimes God does that. He teaches us how to lead by putting people in our lives who are corrupt leaders. All authority is placed by God, but that doesn't mean that all authority that's placed by God is good authority, is righteous authority. Sometimes God puts corrupt authority in our lives to teach us what not to do. Okay, so he has... David come under Saul to teach him what a king after God's own heart doesn't look like. Okay, so David becomes his armor bearer. It says, verse 22, Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. So we see David, he fulfilled his obligation. The spirit would come upon him, this distressing spirit, this demonic spirit. David would play the harp and the spirit would go. And it wasn't just because he was skillful. It was because he was spiritual and he had the spirit of God upon him. And the Lord used his spirit to cast this other spirit out. We also see God's favor on David's life. Only by the grace of God. Would he bring David into the kingdom of Saul? And we even see God trying to teach Saul his need for David, his need for this spiritually minded person. Ultimately, right off the bat, as we're introduced to David, we see that God made a pretty good choice. Very spiritual man, uh, uh, just a, a man full of character at such a young age to be able to say something about someone that young is, is fascinating. I don't know any 10 year olds that, that, that live up to what David is living up to in this text. God's choice. It would work out. It would pan out. Not that David was perfect. We'll talk about his flaws uh, later on. But God was making a choice for the benefit of the people in their entirety. And and God often makes choices for us. And the thing about it, though, as I mentioned before, often, more often than not, because of free will, He gives us the choice to choose His choices or not. We can say, yeah, God, I'll do what I know you're asking me to do, or no, God, I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. We each have the opportunity to make the choices that God would make for us or to, to, to take matters into our own hand and, and make choices that just seem right to us, whether they contradict the word or contradict God or whatever the case may be. Ultimately, we see the only good choices that we can make are choices that line up with God's heart. When we choose things that are contrary to his word, that are contrary to his heart because they don't make sense to us or for whatever reason, we can come up with a million excuses. Those choices always have consequences. Point is, Samuel, David, they trusted God in his choices. 
And because they trusted God and the choices that God was making, not only did they benefit, but the people around them would benefit. In fact, because they trusted God's choices, the entire nation is going to a benefit. And if we can trust God's choices and choose what he chooses for us, other people will benefit as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you make perfect choices. And we don't always see things how you see things. But I pray that you would help us to see things the way you do. Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit so that we would see as you see, that we would hear as you hear, that you would speak to us as you did Samuel. Give us direction. Show us the right choices to make. And give us the strength to, to, to trust and walk in those choices. Um, Lord, we want, we want the best choices for our life. And we know you're the only one that knows what those are. In Jesus' name, amen.